Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast, where we, as always, unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I am Alex Wilhelm, and joining me, uh, as always recently, is Danny Crichton, TechCrunch's managing editor. Danny, hi. Hi, Alex. How are you? Uh, well, for once, I'm on the West Coast where it's warm and lovely and sunny and blue, and you are, I believe, freezing your backside off in New York City. Yes, it's cold, drafty, rainy, and dark and depressing. Yes, and that's proof that we've had just enough coffee to do the show. And uh, this week is going to be a good one because we have my new favorite VCs in the office. We have Elliot Robinson, a partner over at Bessemer Venture Partners. Elliot, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, and the reason why you're my new favorite VC isn't because you're a Washington Wizards fan, which I don't actually have an opinion about <laughs> for once. Uh, it's because you focus on growth stage investments in SaaS and cloud companies, which is yep. essentially the only thing that I cover. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, just for people's knowledge, when Bessemer put together Fund 10, mm -hmm. you also announced a, a about a half billion dollar vehicle, 525 Correct. million, Correct. Uh, focused on just growth stage investments, right? That's right. So just so we know, before we jump in, define growth stage. What's the minimum check size that kind of meets that threshold? Yeah, it's a great question. So the sweet spot check size for us out of Bessemer's growth vehicle that we've branded the Century Fund. So talking about you know, primarily cloud and SaaS companies that we believe will be category leaders for the next century. Um, but we do have some flexibility to do some non-cloud SaaS stuff, which we can talk about as well. But sweet spot for us is somewhere between 25 and 50 million for lead check size, but we have flexibility all up to about 150 million. But 25, 50 means that the, the total round would be between, you know, 40 and 80 probably. You got it. Yep. All right, cool. Uh, I bring that up because the first round we're talking about is actually a $93 million round. So actually, bigger than even your fund might get into, but Headspace has put together a $93 million round total. It's debt and equity, so a bit yeah. of a, a, bit of a split. Um, but as we all know, Calm, a Headspace competitor, raised a bunch yeah. of money last year. So, Danny, I, I want to bring you in on this. Uh, when you read the Headspace news, uh, what percent surprised were you that they had done this? I was not surprised. I mean, I think mental health obviously is a huge growth area, unfortunately. And fortunately, the, the amount of money flowing to the space, both both not only on the, the mental side, but also on the physical health side. So Noom here in New York City has also raised a prodigious amount of capital, is also, I believe, a unicorn now as well. I think, you know, obviously millions and millions of people are looking for ways to focus on physical wellness, mental wellness, um, finding ways to increase meditation. And so it's not surprising to me after Calm raised its big round last year that Headspace is falling in its footsteps. Have you used Headspace or Calm? Uh, I've used Calm. Okay. Yeah. I'm on the other side of this. I've only ever paid for Headspace and not Calm. But I, I knew once Calm put together, it was like $88 million last year, that Headspace was going to come back and raise a huge amount of money. Uh, $40 million in debt from Pacific Western Bank and a total of $53 million in equity from a plethora of firms. I didn't even write them all down because it was like seven. Um, I was a little surprised to see debt, I guess. I, why, why, why would they need to do that was my first question. Yeah, I, I'm not super close to the company or the transaction, but I have to imagine that there must be somewhere close to cash flow break even mm. or maybe even cash flow positive. And maybe the equity side is to juice some new marketing efforts, some new you know, international expansion, domestic expansion into markets they didn't know before. But typically, you know, they've got some kind of cash flow break even, a positivity um, situation on on their financial side which allows them to lever up on the debt okay well uh the 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 scorecard is as follows uh column 143 million uh in known capital to date headspace now 168.2 million inclusive of the debt uh, to be clear um, so they both put together huge amounts of money now over 300 million involved with these two apps effectively and if you're listening and you think that's really dumb it's not because headspace costs 12 or 13 bucks a month or about 100 bucks a year and they have 2 million paid subscribers. So you can do two times 100 pretty easily. 
And these are, you know, IPO scale companies. You're right. That are yeah. purely just apps. I don't know. I'm, I'm stoked about this. I think it's super cool. And Calm, just for the record, was worth over a billion dollars last year. Danny, do we know the new Headspace valuation? I forget if that came out in this round. I don't think it did. Okay. Okay. But Calm uh, did a quadruple of its revenue in 2018. And it a $150 million run, annual run rate, which is just That's right. bonkers. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll take it 30,000 feet, just yeah. my view on the space. One, I'm really happy that mental health is getting kind of the spotlight that it deserves. There's so many things. If you think about, you know, apps 1.0 and 2.0, everyone had a workout app or like a nutritional app or a how many steps are you taking app? But no one was thinking about working out your mental health. Yeah. Um, and not everyone either has, you know, the time or the money or a financial situation really to, to go see a, a health professional when it comes to therapy or behavioral health. So the idea that you're able to do something in your phone or do something at home is really positive from my perspective. My only question on these businesses is most of my stress comes from my phone. So like the last uh, uh. place that I actually want to be dealing with my mental stress is my phone. I'm one of the people that many times a day will, you know, drag from drag down from the bottom of my, uh, my iPhone and put do not disturb on just mm -hmm. because of the number of notifications I get and emails I get, I just need like thinking space. Yeah. Uh, so for me personally, the reason why I'm not a user is just that's not where I want to go for my mental health, either release or, or help. Uh, but I totally understand it's like why going to the bar for an AA meeting. That's like, it's kind a bit, of it's a how weird. I think about it. <laughs> yeah. So I don't disagree with that. Yeah. Uh, but the reason why I'm no longer a Headspace user is because I don't do uh, kind of guided meditation anymore. And oh, I nice. think back when I used this, this was a couple of years ago, to be clear. Uh, that was kind of the core thing they offered was a plethora of, of short to medium to long guided meditations yep. uh, with different focuses. And where I was in my own mental health at the time, that was exactly what I needed. Yeah. Great money spent. But then by the time I got done, I had moved on to unguided meditation, sure. which is free because yeah. you just, you just freaking sit there and that's all you do for like 30 minutes. Um, yeah. I think, I think the, the space and what you're talking about is we're still in the early innings. I mean, uh, the meeting I had before this was over at hinge health, which was the last investment that we announced that I was a part of. And it's, you know, we, we talked a little bit about Livongo, chronic health in the diabetic space. This is using technology sensors and tablets for MSK patients. So you think of the name Hinge Health, kind of anything with a hinge, your neck, your back, oh, your elbows. Yeah, yeah. Great, great branding by the founder there, Daniel Perez. And we led the last round of $90 million financing. Uh, so similar kind of size. And they're using sensors around your waist, your body, your, your arms. And it's a tablet that guides you through physical training at home. Mm. So similar to, you know, mental health where you might not have a chance to sit on a couch with someone for two hours. A lot of people don't have the chance to go see a physical trainer who can help them with their bending right. or stretching. So the ability to use technology to bring that into the home is huge. Yeah. I mean, just uh, putting the cap on what Danny said earlier about Noom. Noom uh, is doing, they grew like 4X last year to like 237 million in revenue. So like, like we're seeing, I guess that company do well, both Calm and Headspace do well, Noom do well. Uh, there's a ton of revenue here. And I, I, I agree we're not done uh, yet, but let's uh, let's scoot on to the other round of the week, um, which uh, Ingrid wrote about for us over on TC.com, which is that Nova Credit uh, has raised $50 million to expand. It's kind of like credit across borders yeah. phenomena. Love that product. Yeah. Well, I so I was confused by it uh, prepping for the show until I read the CEO's example. And uh, here's kind of what, what the CEO, uh, Misha Esipov, said. He said, you know, uh, international students go across borders, they go to a new country, and they essentially are zeros. They have no financial history, no credit history, and, and they're, they kind of feel like he said, like second class citizens. So what if there was a way to bring that uh, kind of credit history across borders 
Danny, when we were talking about this, you mentioned a company called Revolut that does something kind of similar. Is that right? Well, I think, you know, particularly in Europe, in the neo-banking market, you've seen a bunch of new players who focus on cross-border transactions. So Revolut, probably most notably, but you also have uh, TransferWise and a bunch of others. Revolut sort of built banking around cross-border payments, right? So rather than starting with the checking and savings as like the pure, like, you know, core unit of the banking experience, mm -hmm. they said, look, focus on people who have families in multiple countries, focus on people who, you know, maybe are in the EU and have moved around from Poland to the UK or to France or to Spain and build a bank just for them right from the get-go. And I, I think that worked really, really well. The next layer of that, though, is credit scores, right? You don't have a credit history in a lot of these places. You may have cash, and you can transfer cash to cash, but now you ask for a credit card, and then suddenly you go up to a brick wall. You have no history. Um, you know, it's much like if you were a high school student in the U.S., you have to have a secured credit card. You have to put cash up as sort of like a bond in order to it's building credit history, right? So, so I think I think what Nova's saying is like, look, if you're already building credit history in one country, why can't I just move it to somewhere else? Right. Yeah. And I think as someone who's lived in multiple countries myself, um, it's a huge issue. If particularly if you're going to live in a country for a long period of time, obviously if you're just you know a tourist or whatever, it's fine. You can use international credit cards. But if you're really moving your life to a new country, you really have to start from scratch. Because you've lived in South Korea, right? That's correct. And so when you were there, was there any way to bring your credit history with you, or were you just using kind of cash only when you were living there? Cash only, and I had a debit card, okay. which is not uncommon for a lot of folks who cross borders. They use debit instead of credit. Huh. Well, uh, everyone agrees this is a big deal. 50 million in new money. Uh, PitchBook says um, that the first round, first close of the round was at about a $300 million valuation. The company says it's much higher, but declined to give an actual number, which is weak. Yeah. Just, you, can't, you can't be like, that's totally wrong, <laughs> but we're not going to tell you what, what's wrong about it. They had previously raised about $20 million total, so this is a big uh, jump in their capital. And news to me, it's a YC company from 2016. You sound like you're familiar with the firm. Yeah, I am actually. So this value prop is something that hit me three different times in my personal life. So when I went to business school at Columbia, I was trying to figure out why this, this guy from Hungary kept hitting me up on Facebook to be my roommate. Now, he was my classmate, is now one of my very, very close friends uh, from Budapest. And he had worked at McKinsey for like six years. This guy was rated probably top 1% of global associates at McKinsey, was moving to New York for the first time and couldn't get an apartment. So, you know, it, it didn't matter that he was super smart, mm -hmm. had saved a ton of money, was sitting on a bunch of cash and was coming to Columbia for business school, fully paid by McKinsey, by the way. He couldn't get an apartment. So we ended up living together. Uh, a big learning experience for both of us. You know, we were talking before we started about DJing. He got me into house and trance music, which was funny. After, oh, so it's his fault. I see. Well, I DJed hip hop music, but now he took me into oh, okay, a, another okay. place coming from Hungary. But yeah, when, when he moved here, he couldn't get approved anywhere because he had no credit score. And that was super frustrating for him. Yeah. Then post-business school, I moved to Toronto. Mm. And I'm thinking, okay, Toronto's like a 40-minute flight from New York. I'm not going to run into these same problems. And then basically when I set up my account with RBC, I had to put cash up against how much credit they would give me. And that didn't really feel like credit. It felt like here's all my cash. And then however much I want to pull, you're going to put it on my credit card. So that hit me. And then ironically, my girlfriend, post-business school, now wife, she went to South Korea as well with Samsung. Oh, wow. Uh, and she dealt with the same thing where, you know, worked at Goldman Sachs, worked at Deloitte as a consultant, went to Stanford for MBA, dropped down in Korea with the, the Samsung Global Consulting Program. And it was like she was a nobody. And that, you know, nobody, somebody, maybe that's too strong, but she couldn't get anything done. Yeah. 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 Well, so, I, think we're, I think we're also seeing this in, in places, you know, in the business world, right? So, mm -hmm. so NAV, which is a startup out of Utah, which has raised hundred million in venture capital, most recently half of that uh, last year is trying to do the exact same thing for businesses, right? So in many ways, small businesses in particular, you don't have any credit score, credit history, you move to a different bank, you're starting from scratch again. So I think, I think this whole credit score market 
not just for individuals, not just yeah. for international, you know, international students, international consultants, yeah. but also in the small medium business, medium business categories, we're seeing a lot more action sure. in the credit score space as well. I mean, as an investor, not one that's invested in Nova Credit, the two things that I love the most outside of just the general value prop, one, it's the story and the product is personal to the founder, mm-hmm. right? It's something he experienced. I believe he came here for going to school at Stanford or something and it's something that that was so uh, Stanford or Harvard. Yeah, one of those MBA. So yeah, but, oh, but nice. then your wife was at Stanford. So I know, you, I know. you were cool, and then you became <laughs> less cool. And then um, you know, I just love the branding. Um, credit passport is just a really cool thing. I think mm-hmm. everyone kind of understands what that means without yeah. you really having to say Nova Credit does X Y Z. It's like, hey, we we provide a, a credit passport, and it transfers across borders. I think that's well, really cool. Also, if if you've been to school, you've met international students. That's and right. If you've met international students, you know this is the problem that they have. I mean, yeah. it, com- it comes mm-hmm. up. Uh-huh. That's the first time that I think we've all agreed on a topic on this show. Like every, everyone right. thinks it's a smart <laughs> idea. We think it's all good. Well, I, I will say, I will say, you know, to add one more thing here, you know, we've yeah. talked about Plaid uh, the last couple of weeks mm. since its acquisition by Visa, but you know, again, you know, having the raw data versus the score is a huge deal in this market, right? You know, Plaid can give you, you know, these sorts of companies access to all of your financial information, but ultimately there has to be a score accepted by underwriters in all these different countries for the credit products insurance or whatnot. Yeah. And so even though Plaid has sort of been bought out, that's still sort of layer zero, layer one in this market. And there's so many more layers in fintech to go. Yeah. The, my final note that I wasn't going to bring up and I will was that the fintech fin services boom is not done because I had never thought of this. And it turns out there's an enormous need for it. It's a huge market. It's going to be a, probably a really big company. Uh, and I'm just curious how many more blind spots I have out there that are going to end up being, uh, I guess, unicorns are better. So. Exciting to see. Uh, Ribbit Capital, I presume, is very happy that the fintech boom is still going on. But let's talk about a different venture firm. And I brought up uh, your recent fundraise to put this in context earlier on, but Battery Ventures has closed about $2 billion across two funds uh, just two years after its last fundraise. So a relatively quick turnaround to go back to the old LPs. And just for general context, they have a $1.2 billion fund and I think a $800 million vehicle as well. So that's a lot of capital. Really quick turnaround. Um, you just put a bunch of money into your accounts. How is everyone so optimistic that everything's not about to go to shit? Uh, and therefore they need $2 billion <laughs> with which to go into the market. Like they're on a horse charging against some, you know, line of soldiers. Yeah. I think there's two threads to, to the recent funding announcements and battery included. You know, a lot of that article talked about pacing. It's something that we think about it at Bessemer. I know many of our, our peers think about it. I actually don't think that in general, the pacing from a number of checks being written is substantially like shot out of a cannon, mm-hmm. but the round sizes are certainly much bigger. And then the other thing is companies are just staying private longer. Yeah. So it, it's taking more capital for them to get to kind of a liquidity event. So for us, you know, when we think about pacing, we think a little bit more about time diversification, like a lot of investments going into a really hot market or a really expensive multiple market, but the actual pace of doing new deals is somewhat in the same bounds of what we've done historically. The question will be, to to your second comment around, are things going to go to crap? Uh, That time diversification, if you're only investing in the hot end of the market and you do it so quickly in kind of a two-year span, perhaps you get locked into that two-year span. And then when things correct, you know, you don't have the three or four-year time horizon uh, that gives you that time diversification. So bigger bigger rounds, similar sort of uh, velocity of deal-making. And uh, on the point about time, um, Chelsea Stoner, in an interview with, uh, with Connie at TC, said that they deployed their last fund in two years, and this one's bigger, but this new collection of funds is bigger because they want to get back to fundraising every two and a half to three years. 
just from my layman's perspective, frankly, that doesn't seem like an enormous difference in time. It's six months or, or 12 months, but is that, is that a material shift in going back to the LP well? I, I think almost all VCs focus on opportunistic. So, you know, we talked about Kleiner Perkins last week. They went through their entire fund in what, 12 months or 11 months, I think we figured out. They're already quick. back to their LPs. They got off a plane back from, I guess, Colorado, and they're going right back on it again. I think, you know, no VC is going to try to do bad deals to burn through the capital as quickly as possible. When good deals come up, they invest. And sometimes you get a lot of good deals all in a row. So I think, you know, in times like now where it's very fast paced, you're going to go through your capital really fast. At other times when it's slower, you might hold on to that fund three, four years. You know, one of the former uh, firms that I worked for 20 years ago back during the dot-com bust returned half the capital from its last fund. And actually yeah. gave it back to LPs and said, we don't know how to spend it. We don't know what to do with it. And so I think, you know, when, when there are good investments, people try to do good you know, deals. And when they're not, they, they take a step back. And so I, I don't think anyone's sort of saying, hey, we have to have this magic number where the last dollar goes out in exactly 24 months or something's, you know, seriously yeah. wrong. I, I, you know, my only last comment on this is, you know, I was lucky enough to start Inventure 14 years ago mm-hmm. uh, at a fund in D.C. called Syncom Venture Partners. And back then... We were a, we, we market ourselves and believed ourselves to be a series A and series B fund. And back then that meant something that meant like, Hey, one to $5 million checks in series A, maybe five to 10 in B. Now, every week you guys cover it closer than I do. We see $30 million series A, $50 mm-hmm. million series A, $75 million series B. So if you are a series A and B fund from 14 years ago, the pace by which you have to deploy capital just to maintain a series A, B fund today it's totally different. The letters just don't mean what they used to mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and worse, the, those three rounds will come in between 8.03 a.m. and 8.07 exactly a.m. Right. on a Monday morning. <laughs> that's and that's exactly just four right. minutes worth of the deals that we have to cover here at TechCrunch. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I feel like the, the time between rounds is going down as well. So if you want to do follow-on capital and kind of keep your pro rata up, you're going to have to keep a lot more capital flowing through. So I, I guess my takeaway then from all this, and I didn't know where this was going to end up, but my takeaway is that uh, battery isn't crazy. This is a bit driven by market dynamics and uh, also by them being opportunistic with writing checks, but that's just intelligent. Uh, and we should expect to see more uh, mega funds coming out. I mean, because if you guys just did it, they just did it. I mean, I, you know, Kleiner's going to get some more money. So pretty soon, I guess, when, when, does anyone ever slow down or do we just wait for the economy to blow up? And then I think, we do I think SoftBank's going to slow down, but we'll get there in a little bit. <laughs> I, I certainly think there will be a slowing down when some of the realizations don't come to roost. You know, we've been lucky as a firm that last year was great from us, for us from a liquidity standpoint. We've had some good IPOs that I'm sure you guys covered and mm-hmm. uh, even some more M&A activity more recently with Havana Labs, for example, which was you know, super meaningful for us as a firm. So I think, you know, everyone will be able to market, oh, we're in the category leader. That was something that Chelsea talked about. And she talked about it very in a very compelling way where they talked about their thesis driven approach and how they canvass the market. And if you really believe that, then hey, maybe pace isn't such of a thing as long as you know you're in the best performing assets. It's the firms that might not have done all of the homework or sometimes we're all wrong, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm wrong a lot of the time as well. And that stuff will come back around and then people will say, okay, pump the brakes a little bit. And Chelsea's comment in the piece was that they they look at a category like aging populations and they kind of cut it up into little areas and they find the best performing companies in those spaces and then put capital to work, which is, it's more work than I thought VCs did. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that. I mean, at the firm, our secret sauce, not so secret because people kind of know about it. We talk about it in in the press and publicly is our road mapping process. Mm. And at any given time, the firm will have kind of 20 to 30 active roadmaps that we're uh, investing in, 
We've got a bunch of portfolio companies in, but the real, real secret sauce are the kind of five to 10 roadmaps that we're developing that we haven't found to be, you know, particularly investable yet, but we know in the next fund cycle is going to be a place where we start making really, really early bets. So we're talking to thought leaders, entrepreneurs, ecosystem, buyers, the financing side on the super seed, and really trying to figure out where are these roadmaps that we're not talking about in the press, where are they going? And then right at the time that everyone's talking about, we try to be a half step ahead. So Right. And therefore you get in for like half the cost. That's the hope. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned uh, $50 million Series A's. Let's turn into a $56 million fund. Danny has the notes for us on a brand new, I guess we'll call it a micro fund. $56 million yeah, sure. over at Equal Ventures. Uh, it's, I, it's a one-shot fund. <laughs> They'll invest in exactly one deal. I saw the Twitter thread, but I need, I need more, Danny. So tell me about Equal Ventures. Yeah, so Equal Ventures is a, a new seed fund based in New York run by, by two new GPs, Richard Kirby, who spent multiple years at Venrock in San Francisco and New York, and Rick Zulo, who was at Lightbank, which is, uh, I believe, Chicago-based, but he it was based is. in New York. Yeah. Um, and um, the, the, the couple of things that are interesting about the fund. So it is a $56 million vehicle. It is focused on the seed stage. So looking at check sizes of one and a half to two million, so not your 55 million and up uh, Series A's, but that nice early stage round. And what they're particularly focused on, which I thought was fascinating, was non-technical founders, which is not something you hear about in the Silicon Valley very much. And so part of the thesis here is to say, you know, because of all the SaaS tools that have come out, the platforms, remote work, that the, the ability to build a product has just become democratized far more than in the past. And so they're really interested in spaces like retail, logistics, where market knowledge from actual business practitioners within those verticals, build businesses that are technology enabled and enabled by those platforms that have been built out by Silicon Valley over the last 10 years. Well, it's funny because people often say that, you know, people in Silicon Valley apply tech to a space, not realizing the kind of current solutions like, oh, yeah. you invented a bus. Good job. Uh, in this case, though, it's the other way around. It's, it's people that don't have tech experience bringing market knowledge in. And now we can That's say right. you can't code. That's yeah. kind of a similar joke. But I mean, you can always hire some people to help out with that. I like the thesis. That that's right. And, and, you know, with the no code movement moving forward, I mean, in a lot of these spaces, sometimes it's as simple as like, it is sort of a, a, like, you know, a spreadsheet almost in some of these cases, right? A, a souped up spreadsheet might be exactly the product someone needs in like a small, medium business trucking facility or something like that. And so, so by bringing people who have that market knowledge ideas, you can get to market faster, get sales faster, get revenues and growth and get that 55 million series A boost and, and get that onto the, the, the GP table as quickly as possible. The timing of this announcement and our conversation is pretty unfair for me personally. So both of the GPs there are very close personal friends of mine. So Rick went to business school with me at Columbia and Richard is my closest friend in venture. Oh, uh, there's not too many people that look like us who've been in the space as long as we have. And ironically, uh, Richard's wife and my wife went to high school together in Nightingale right. in New York City. So, so I've, I thought that. this might have been canned, but they just no. announced it. So we, we didn't plan this, but now we can actually do some reporting on air. So yeah, let's, let's talk it. about the worst bits about them. Like, tell us the dirt. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I can't say anything bad about them, to be totally honest. They're both two of the most thoughtful investors that I know. And the beauty of seeing the announcement for me personally is I remember standing in my kitchen probably two years ago when Richard called me and said, hey, I'm going to sync up with Rick and we're going to do this thing together. And the thesis that they explained to me over the phone that day is the exact thesis that made it into the press. So they didn't change it. I remember through their fundraising process, it was a collaborative thing, talking to them about their thesis, who they're targeting. I made reference calls like I could not be happier about not just what's happening for them in their fund, but the way they're approaching it. I think they're shepherding in a whole new way of, of thinking when it comes to doing early, early stage investing. People won't believe us, but that is actually a coincidence that you're here this week. It and, is totally a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but a good one, though. Um, 
these these micro funds I, I hear two things about them. One yeah. is that um, they're a chance for outsized returns for LPs because you can pick a single investor or a single pair of investors and, and really double down on just the people you think are, are fantastic. The other side of that is I hear that a lot of these micro funds aren't going to be able to raise a fund too because they're not going to have enough um, hard returns uh, after deploying the capital to actually pull it off. Now, I don't know if that's true. Just what I'm hearing. I'm, I'm kind of curious, uh, Elliot, what you think about the, the viability of the boom in like, you know, 40 to $75 million funds. Yeah, I think it really depends on you being smart about who your LPs are. There's so much talk about startups and investing in tech and a lot of new uh, non-institutional LPs that have come into the space. I think, you know, not picking on equal, but I think they did it right where they've got this unique blend of kind of newer non-institutional LPs that have come in and provided pipeline value, strategic value, market insight value, but they've also blended that with some institutional LPs that you know, when you're making a commitment to someone like Equal, conversation should be about the next two or three fund commitment. Now, of course, if it totally blows up and they make some wild bets, that doesn't make sense. But as long as it's on thesis, they're doing exactly what they told you they should do. If you're an institutional investor, you should really be thinking about making that commitment, not just for fund one, but how fund two and mm-hmm. how potentially fund three could develop. So the hope is that, you know, they stay on thesis, which I know they already have and will. I know some of their LPs personally, uh, and I, I'm pretty sure they'll be in there for the long run. Okay, well, that's uh, if you're wrong, you can come back on <laughs> and tell us why. Not. Uh, and if you're right, you can come back on anyways. Let's talk about uh, Airbnb quickly because I have been talking too much and let us run on a little bit late. Airbnb's Q3 numbers were reported by the Wall Street yeah. Journal: uh, 1.65 billion in revenue, up about 400 million from the year ago quarter, growth about 30 percent, and critically, a net profit of 266 million dollars. Pretty good. However, uh, not enough to alleviate the company's Q1, Q2 net losses. So the firm yeah. ended up negative $322 million for yeah. Q1s through three, a change from being plus $200 million a year ago. The narrative is what we all know, you know, rising sales and marketing costs, some rising security costs, which probably impacts cost of yeah. revenue or COGS, lowering their gross margins, and slowing growth rates. And when you're going public, you don't really want to have that confluence of events. Yeah. And I've seen all sorts of theories, people saying they're juicing S&M spend to drive revenue growth ahead of an IPO to get yeah. a better multiple or whatever. Danny and I were talking about this before, and our, our, our takeaway was kind of, how do you value this thing? Because you know, they're a bit darned if they do, darned if they don't. Yeah. If they don't spend on S&M, they won't grow as fast, they won't be as attractive. But if they do, they're less profitable and less attractive. So I, I don't know, Danny, when this goes public this year, do you think it's going to be a, a, a surprisingly positive event or kind of a meh uh, direct listing? I think it's really up to, uh, a question of whether they're going to go public at all. They, they've said very aggressively that they intend to go public. They've like kind of said this over and over yeah. and over again. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. But like, you know, uh, Bill Gurley had a great point on Twitter, I think, in the last couple of days, which was like, you know, people talk about these open windows on the market. You know, you want to come when everything's auspicious, everything's lined up and you have coronavirus going on, which not only affects kind of the global macro issue, yeah. it also affects a lot of Chinese money, but it also affects particularly this business, Yes, which is Airbnb has a huge China business, both for people going to China and for Chinese people going overseas to Europe, to the United States, elsewhere. Um, and, and that's being slammed pretty hard right now with the quarantines in place. And so, you know, that might be a multi-month delay right there, right? Just to shore up the numbers and bring everything back to normal. And so what's regrettable here is I think Airbnb had a moment, you know, maybe a year ago when it may have been able to pull this off when the markets were very, very hot, maybe pre-Uber even. But today, like, God, everything looks terrible. I mean, it's it's unprofitable. It's losing even more money now than it was before. Like, how do you make that story? I I just don't even know. I mean, it's definitely a a valuable company, but I I don't know at all how to put a price on it or how I'd even approach that. 
but it does have a lot of, you know, really good mind share, really good brand sure. equity. And yeah. you know, if you're going to direct list, you're just going to go out there and float. Yeah. And maybe that can drive a pretty good first couple of months. But I mean, if growth remains slow and the stock is high on a multiple spaces, yeah. it's not going to be super, super fantastic. Uh, but just throwing Danny's point at you, Elliot, if they went public last year, do you think that would have been a smarter move? I do, actually. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, when you're preparing for an IPO and thinking about particularly those first two quarters after IPO before lockup uh, expires, it's just about the narrative and the trend. And right now the trend is, you know, newer losses have come into the conversation. And do you even have, it probably takes two to two and a half quarters to like change that narrative, let alone the trend, right? Because you're spending now or cutting expenses. And depending on the business model, it might take a couple of quarters for the, you know, those changes or decisions to even show up on the bottom line. So they're, they're probably in a tough spot. You can't just turn it over and say, okay, well, now we're going to go back to profitability from a <laughs> JK, year ago. Just, you know. Right. Like that was just a weird quarter for us. And the other thing that I think it's smart for their business long term is they started launching new products, like the experiences around when you stay at an Airbnb property or someone else's really nice home. You can bring in a chef. You can bring in a magician. I don't know if you can actually <laughs> bring in a magician, but that'd be really cool if you had kids. But as they were wrapping these experiences, I think that was to build a narrative of we've got this platform that's super profitable and massive and we're building on new revenue streams. But when you're testing new revenue streams, you need to invest in that. And that takes uh. time and it takes money to do that. So. I think they're just, to your point, they're in this, um, it's not even weird, but it's, uh, it's a very interesting inflection point of we were always known for this thing, and now we've got to bring in new things, probably tamp up growth a little bit, and then the, the combination of coronavirus and an election year is just, like, really, really challenging. Yeah. Um, so but I, I also think, you know, in the travel space, we've talked about Oyo Hotels, which is, I believe, also yeah. a soft bank property, but, you oh, know, yes. also kind of a very negative story going on in the in this marketplace. And then yeah. we talked about TripAdvisor, I think, shortly, Alex, what, two, three weeks ago, which, yep. which got slammed on its quarterly earnings because it's really losing out on the Google kind of search traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, it was down 20% right after its earnings. And so, you know, again, in the travel space, there's just so much competition. There's a lot of challenges. I think Airbnb is a unique property. I, I think it's actually, really, like, as you said, it's a valuable property. It, it's an extremely strong company. But, you know, when there's so many macro factors against you, like that's hard. I mean, it's basically arrows flying at your head uh, as you're trying to run to the public market out front. Yeah. And speaking about arrows and, and struggling, I think the Casper IPO is going to cost a bit of a pall on the, the D2C space. But um, another thing that's going to ding D2C is brandless just shutting down. Mm. And uh, this week we saw, I think what we can kind of call the first softening vision fund death. And I, and I don't want to stamp on this and be yeah. kind of mean. There's no point, uh, but Brandless uh, was famous for kind of $3 products kind of across the board. Yeah. I actually, I bought a bunch back when it launched. They were uh, plus and minus. I mean, yeah, sure. some were kind of weird, weird mouthwash back then. That was <laughs> wild. Uh, I still recall it just, I took a swig of it and I was like, what the hell is yeah. this? Uh, dude, that was back when like tech was like really hilarious. I feel like now tech's very serious. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, they said they raised 240 from SoftBank. It was a tranched mm-hmm. investment. They didn't get the whole thing. So it, the Vision Fund didn't lose 240 on it. But it's a pretty rough time. And this brings us into kind of the last thing we're talking about today, which is the SoftBank uh, yeah. quarter. Danny, there is just a bunch of stuff. Why don't I just say some facts and then you can say some facts and then we'll talk about it. So SoftBank's quarter was bad. They actually ended up making $24 million, which was a, a tiny number. Effectively, they broke even after losing money last quarter. They saw they can bit- invest in one Series A or one half Series A going forward. Or they can be in the L- like a real LP in the second equal of interest fund too, because uh, yeah. that's a good commit size for a fund of that size. Uh, two billion in write-offs, and uh, Masa said, you know, they turned the corner and that things are going to get better. And then, Danny, of course, the Sprint T-Mobile deal happened. Uh, what was up with that? 
Yeah. So, I mean, here, here's what, what's the contradictory element of SoftBank, right? It had a terrible quarter. It had, you know, profits went down, you know, 99% was the headline, which is sort of obnoxious, <laughs> right? It, it's not revenue that went down. It's just yeah. sort of the, the net operating profit for the, for the quarter. But um, the stock is at a, a multi-month high. And so um, Sprint, which is more than 80% owned by SoftBank, uh, cleared its sort of major regulatory hurdles around antitrust with its merger with T-Mobile. Um, and that actually has cleared a huge part of like the ambiguity around SoftBank up. And so stockholders are investing rapidly. Uh, the stock went up, I think, 15% or so. 12%, um, I think. Yeah. 12%. Um, and so what, what, what's great here is, you know, even as the Vision Fund is sort of continuing to decline as more and more of these investments like Brandless kind of come up, you know, SoftBank itself is sort of figuring it out at the conglomerate level, okay, here's where the investments are. Here's how we're clearing it up. Sprint's now going to be the third largest I mean, it was always, I guess, the third largest, but now it's going to be a strong third, you know, largest telco competitor to Verizon and AT&T, Verizon being TechCrunch's parent company, oh, yeah, good or parent, parent, parent company, um, somewhere up in the corporate chain. And, um, you know, they, they figured a lot of stuff out. So maybe they are turning a corner. Although I, I feel like Mazda Sun literally says he's turning a corner every single day. He must have like the polyhedron of houses <laughs> in which he's just constantly turning corner after corner after maybe corner. He, maybe he lives on a NASCAR track. <laughs> exactly. Uh, if you don't get that joke, uh, you watch better sports. All right. Uh, also, uh, inside the Vision Fund, uh, our our uh, our former co-host and our fr- dear friend Kate Clark wrote a piece about how Vision Fund companies are really being pushed to uh, rapidly ramp towards profitability. We kind of knew this narrative that yeah. they all of a sudden everyone was like, "Oh, you should make some money," and everyone was like, yeah. "Oh, crap." Uh, but she had a quote that I really liked that I wanted to bring up, which is that quote: "The urgency could be especially acute for the roughly one fifth of the ninety or so companies in the Vision Fund portfolio." that haven't publicly announced new funding in the past year. Yeah. Uh, they were raising a lot earlier. They were spending a lot. They were trying sure. to grow quickly. And now the spigot has effectively stopped as Vision Fund 2 kind of falls into doubt. I know y'all have money and Battery has money, but for these companies that haven't raised in a while and were former SoftBank portfolio entities, how much trouble are they in for getting that next check? Can they do it? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's going to be harder <laughs> is the, the overlying uh, headline there. The, you know. Think about three or four years when all of this conversation was first starting, of how big the fund was going to be, how big the checks were. I remember where I was when I had the first conversation with the SoftBank investment professional. I said, well, could you give me just the five-second rundown of what the Vision Fund strategy is? And without going into it, he basically said, we're going to talk to all of the three or four leading companies in a space. We're going to issue term sheets to all of them at the same time. And whichever one takes the money, we're willing to outmarket, underprice, and outlast you. I said, okay, well, that's an interesting way to articulate that. And what's funny, at the time, one of my portfolio companies had a Series C term sheet for $30 million. Uh-huh. That's kind of what they needed to get to the next stage of growth. And they also had a SoftBank term sheet of $150 million. <laughs> Wait, so 30 and 150 150 There was no justification or understanding of how to spend 150 However, they also gave that 150 offer to that company's number one competitor. So you can imagine the CEO and the founding team is thinking, okay, well, 30 is what I need. I kind of like the dilution here of this 30 and doing more of what we already know works. But I also don't want to wake up and my biggest competitor's got $150 million on their balance sheet. Now, this was three or four years ago. Yeah. Now, if you fast forward to today, um, I'm very happy that that founder took the $30 million because the things that, that really drive the best companies have to do with, starts with a philosophy, right? Like we were just talking about Airbnb. They grew efficiently. They tested markets before they really uh, jumped in with both feet. And the term that 
you know, it's not like a Bessemer term, but something we talk about uh, internally is nail it before you scale it, mm. right? But when you're taking on $150, $250 million, probably haven't nailed it before you scale it because you're a new investor and you just took on a bunch of dilution. You want to start spending that money. So you hire people. You start trying new marketing things. Your, uh, your Christmas party gets a lot more extravagant. Your, you know, offsite retreat gets yeah. a lot more extravagant. At the core of it, you lose the philosophy that you had. You lose the connective tissue of the core management team, you know, working with the generals and the VPs down to, to the last employee. And that's all lost when all that money shows up, let alone the secondary involved. And, you know, we, we were thinking two or three years ago, oh, man, this is going to come back to haunt some of these companies. And unfortunately, it has. I have friends that work at these companies. Yeah. So that, that's kind of the sad part about yeah. it. The whole layoff thing hasn't been great to see because oh. it always impacts families. But yeah. I, I will say, I didn't know that uh, the Vision Fund's core thesis was uh, extortion. Uh, take this money. <laughs> I didn't say that. Well, competitive, <laughs> competitive. Well, yeah, I, I would say competitive. But I, I, to double down on yeah. Elliot's point, I think the, the key here is not just to nail it and then scale it. it it's, you have to keep renailing it, right? Yeah, you have to right. nail it at the that's early right. stage. You got to find product market fit, early right. marketing channels. And then as you grow through... You know, you're going to keep figuring out additional, you know, you got to nail the expansion of that marketing dollars, right? So, I mean, part of the beauty of the way the venture works, where you have these multiple rounds, you got to keep reevaluating how you're spending it is, you know, just getting $200 million in the mail, suddenly you're like, ooh, I can spend $100 million in the next six months. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is you really haven't figured out anything on how to spend $100 million in, in six months. Yeah. Well, uh, I could stay here all day because I love all these topics like they're my children. But unfortunately, we have to call it an episode. Oh, Danny has one last thing. Well, you're talking about Elliot, but the last piece to SoftBank is actually Elliot, which is Elliot Management Company has built up a oh. huge stake of almost yeah. what, 12%, Alex? If, if I, I forget correctly. the number, but sizable. Sizable, what's called sizable stake into SoftBank to try to push the company to reform. It's actually a really big deal, you know, particularly in Asia where uh, corporate governance is still um, yeah. much more loose than it is in the United States. Uh, to see uh, a couple of years ago, Elliot fought Samsung and actually lost that battle. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see as, as Elliot sort of doubles down on SoftBank to see what happens next. Well, the Sprint deal was good news for Elliot. They made a bunch of money off that. Good job. Buy a yacht. Uh, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you for coming in, Elliot. Thank you guys so much. You can find us on Twitter as at Alex and at Danny Crichton. That's at D-A-N-N-Y-C-R-I-C-H-T-O-N. Or you can email us all at equitypod at techcrunch.com. Today's episode was produced and recorded and edited by Christopher Gates. A big thank you to our executive producer, Henry Picavet, and always TechCrunch's head of studio, Jachad Kulkarni. If you want to support the show, and thank you for doing that, head over to iTunes and give us a rating or review, or really, best yet, tell someone you know about us. We really appreciate that. It helps. 